Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into theology of the body. Uh, we are in Christopher Westwork, Fill These Hearts, um, specifically chapter 4, where he's talking about the banquet. Um, now, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, what is Fill These Hearts about? Well, this book is about first desire, uh, and not trivial desire now, not superficial wants, uh, but about the atomic energy of our souls, as Christopher West puts it, that universal ache and longing we feel as human beings for something. It is also about design, about God's loving design for our happiness as men and women. He responds to that uh, great question, what does the very design of our bodies as male and female tell us about God's plan for our lives? My dear friends, remember that if God is the author of our humanity, he is also the author of our human desire, including sexual desire. And certainly this is a very important point in this work and uh, more globally, uh, theology of the body. Uh, lastly, this work is about destiny, about our eternal destiny. My dear friends, we are created for bliss, for ecstasy, and our hearts know it. According to the Christian faith, the ecstasy we yearn for at the deepest level of our being is precisely what God wants to give us eternally, huh? eternally. So uh, this book is about desire design, and destiny. And again, as I've noted, we are in this chapter, uh, chapter 4, titled The Banquet, where we have been focusing on having our desires met by God. And so, uh, if you have your work out there, if you want to turn to page 43, we'll just jump right back in where we left off. Um, and on page 43, and really for the remainder of uh, chapter 4, what Christopher West does, and I love this, he reflects into uh, the Academy Award-winning film Babette's Feast from uh, 1987. And he makes a point here, before we go any further, that I think is really essential for us, uh, because I think we're all moviegoers to some degree, that, uh, you know, sometimes we watch a movie and we just want to be entertained, we want to eat our popcorn and have our soda, and that's just fine. But sometimes a movie comes along, that really speaks to the narrative of salvation history, uh, that really speaks to uh, redemption in such a way that it demands our attention, and it actually uh, ought to have us thinking about studying uh, the piece itself, studying the movie itself, studying the script itself, so as to maybe uh, gain a deeper understanding into uh, how Christ works. One of the things that we have talked about a great deal on this radio program is uh, the stuff of the new evangelization, making that which is incomprehensible, comprehensible. And how do you do that? Well, you use images, you tell stories, and sometimes 
whether Hollywood realizes it or not, whether their producers and directors realize it or not, they do a pretty darn good job of telling the story of redemption. And certainly, as Christopher West notes, Babette's Feast does just that. Uh, how does it do that? Well, it's sympathetic to the human struggle in how the temptations we face either squelch desire in the name of quote-unquote virtue or to indulge desire in the name of quote-unquote happiness. Huh? Now, in Babette's Feast, the movie gently reveals the way of conversion from both, as we've talked about it before, the starvation diet gospel and the fast food diet gospel to uh, this chapter, the banquet gospel. It shows us that it is possible to overcome our fears and our addictions and ultimately enter the feast of rejoicing, which of course is what the banquet is all about. Now, I just want to read here a little bit from Christopher West as he kind of sets the stage and the backdrop for the movie itself. Uh, He says this, The movie is set in a desolate corner of Denmark in the late 1800s and tells the story of two elderly sisters named Martine and Philippa who keep the memory of their well-respected and perhaps a little feared father alive among the aging congregants of a strict religious sect he had founded. Babette first appears in the film as the congregation sings, Never would you give a stone to the child who begs for bread. And of course, this quote uh, presages her role as the one who would help the people to exchange their piously chosen stones for the heavenly banquet itself. And now, the presence of this rather elegant French woman among such austere Danes can be explained as the narrator tells us, only through the hidden regions of the heart. And uh, as Christopher West notes, that's the key. You know, access to the heavenly feast comes only through the hidden regions of the heart. Uh, The story itself then takes us back nearly 50 years to a time when Martine's and Philippa's beauty was likened to flowering fruit trees. They were never seen at local balls or parties, so young men went to church to see them. Among their father's flock, however, earthly love and marriage were considered to be of scant worth and merely empty illusion. Not surprisingly, these two young beauties upset the peace of heart and the destinies of two men, both of whom came from the great world outside." Now, Lawrence, the visiting nephew of a devotee of the pastor, upon meeting Martine, had a mighty vision of a higher and purer life than the one he was living as a rogue officer in the Swedish cavalry. He tried to win her heart while attending church meetings, but couldn't break through her austere shell. He gave up despondently and devoted himself to a life of military ambition and worldly indulgence. Now, if you've, if you've seen this movie, Babette's Feast, you know that Philippa was pursued by uh, a famous French opera singer named Papin. Mesmerized by Philippa's voice, he was convinced, that is, Papin, if she followed his training, her singing would surely save souls and, quote-unquote, comfort the poor. At one point, as her sister and father listened disapprovingly from another room, 
Philippa and Papin sing a duet from Mozart's opera Don Giovanni. As the lover in that story passionately pursued his beloved, it becomes clear that Papin is not merely acting the part. He has fallen for Philippa, and through the song, he expresses his desire to make her his wife. Trembling, yet listening, Philippa sings, I'm fearful of my joy. Desire, love, and doubting are battling in my heart. That's a great line. Desire, love, and doubting are battling in my heart. Now, by the end of the song, Philippa has allowed herself to be wooed and is daring to feel her desire, daring to hope in love's fulfillment. But alas, what we find is just when we're rooting for Philippa to break out of her prison and follow Papin's passion and her own to the altar, the next scene reveals her chosen spouse. She has wed herself to fear and sends Papin away. And we often do the same with God, huh? <laughs> like Papin, Christ sings of his uh, passionate desire for us, his heart bleeding with a kind of divine eros. And like Philippa, we tremble yet listen. We yearn, but we are afraid of allowing our eros to open up to God's eros. My dear friends, Christ wants to set us on fire. This is the point we made last week, huh? but we are afraid to allow that fire to burn within us. Heavenly bliss is our most ardent desire. But what was that line from Philippa? What did she sing? Desire, love, and doubting are battling in our hearts. We are fearful of our own joy. And perhaps we are afraid of how ardent is our own need for joy. And perhaps more so, we are afraid it will never be fulfilled. Which means what, by the way, my friends, to be filled full? Uh, so often we use words and we don't think about what the words themselves mean. <laughs> we don't necessarily need to know a Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. Just look at the compound within the English word itself. Filled full. We see this also in a word like communion. What is communion but common union? Huh? It's fascinating when we just kind of simplify things. So if we want to be fulfilled, we are being filled full, to the fullest. What a wild thing is that desire that incessantly aggravates the core of our being. As long as we are vested with the human flesh, there will always be this tension. For many of us, it scares the heck out of us. In those moments when we sense how deep the hunger goes, when we sense how needy we are and how utter our poverty and thus how completely dependent we are on something outside of ourselves to meet that need, it scares us. As Christopher West notes, it, it freaks us out. It really does. I have been in a number of conversations in light of the first beatitude and its importance in the moral life, that beatitude being, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the first beatitude, essentially the first verse to the whole Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Why is that the first verse? 
Because if we are poor in God, or if we are utterly dependent upon God for everything, then that means we don't control anything. And the irony is, <laughs> when we allow God in our lives totally, <laughs> we find that what we control is a lot more. He wants us to uh, be free. He wants us to desire the things that rightfully belong to Him. But uh, we will not do that if we have not first given ourselves totally and entirely to God. And I know this scares us, but we do have to appreciate this point for what it is. And if we don't, what do we do? We cope either by trying to shut desire down, and this is what the starvation diet gospel was all about, that stoicism, or by seeking to fill it up on our own terms with things that never can meet our need. This is what we were talking about as it relates to the fast food gospel, the addiction, if you will. Um, Philippa now felt her eros rising up, and she almost was ready to say yes to it, to give joy a chance to flourish. But in the end, fear took over. Some would probably argue that she was right to quote-unquote shut it down, or at least she was right to want to keep her desires under control, since our desires are so often out of order. I get that. This is true, and we have to say it again very clearly. This side of original sin, our desires are very often disordered, and that means we can't simply go with them without some measure of caution and discernment. But control of our desires is not our ultimate goal. Here, Christopher West quotes a one Father Simon Tugwell in his work on the Beatitudes, and he observes this. I love this quote. Our appetites need to be controlled because they are out of tune, out of harmony with our need for God. But control is only a temporary measure. The ideal is for us not to control our appetites at all, but to allow them full reign in the wake of an uncontrolled appetite for God. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I love that. For good things to run wild. We don't often think of order and running wild at the same time, but welcome to Christianity, huh? <laughs> welcome to the tension that is paradox. Amen to that. Christopher West calls this vertical wildness. We have these wild desires in us because we are made to go wild with God and in God. The saints often speak of this kind of wildness as a divine madness, or you will hear the phrase used, holy intoxication. Take this desire to go wild horizontally, that is to say, to the things of this world, and as Christopher West notes, what you end up at is a frat party, but aim it heavenward. I know this is easier said than done, and you end up launching yourselves into infinity. Remember what that word desire means, huh? To long for, to wish for, to hope for. The original sense meaning to look to the stars or to await what the stars may bring. 
we will never be able to launch ourselves to the stars vertically if we are so focused on matters horizontally. We must live with one foot here on earth and one foot in heaven. And when we do that, my friends, is when we have arrived, when we see all things in light of the end. Christopher West here uh, poignantly uh, notes that old Steppenwolf song, Born to be Wild, that we've all heard. <laughs> we are created, as the song goes, to take the world in a love embrace and to fire all of our guns at once and explode into space. Once again, here you have the secular world uh, grasping at something and unknowingly speaking to a much deeper meaning. Uh, you know, the members of Steppenwolf, like so many other rock musicians, show themselves to be what we can call horizontal mystics. They're looking in their gut and expressing in song, in unedited fashion, what they really feel going on inside of them. And sure, it may be horizontal, most rock music is, but if you were to take the words that they are singing about and push them up vertically, you catch a glimpse of something mystical. We are born to be wild. We are born to give ourselves whole and entire to something, surrendering all control to the wild abyss that is God. You know, the Jansenists would have us believe that our nature is so corrupted by sin that every human desire is suspect and thus our only dutiful response to desire is to apply the brakes. But if this is our approach to desire, always to say no to it, there is the danger that we will not know how to say yes to what God wants to lavish on us. Once again, quoting Father Tugwell, though we may from time to time have to break firmly to stop ourselves rushing headlong into silly satisfactions, we must not make breaking a whole way of life. It is more important eventually to know how to say yes to a desire than know how to say no. At the end, we still have to surrender ourselves utterly and recklessly and without any inhibition to the whole overwhelming attractiveness of God. My dear friends, this is the kind of thing that you, yes, find in uh, the mystics, but also sacred scripture. The Lord calls us to open wide our mouths so that he can fill them up. Uh, Psalm 81.10. Uh, Psalm 23.5 reminds us that he has prepared a banquet for us, and he yearns ardently for us to taste and see that he is good. That is also echoed in Psalm 34.8. Uh, but, as with the rigid congregation and Babette's feast, fear and propriety often cause us to numb our tongues. Uh, we can even confuse uh, the good things of God for something evil, as do the sisters in this movie. Uh, speaking of the movie, let us go ahead and, and return to the movie as uh, Christopher West does. You know, if you've watched the movie, we know that Martine and Philippa never marry. As the movie progresses, now elderly, their lives are forever changed when the uh, elegant Babette appears at their door as a refugee from the war in France. She presents uh, the sisters with a letter from Papin who asks if they would take her in as their housekeeper. Papin's letter also laments 
the fate that kept Philippa's voice from filling the Grand Opera House in Paris. He expresses a heartfelt hope, however, that in paradise he will hear her voice again. And this is the line from the movie. There you will forever be the great artist that God intended you to be. Oh, how you will enchant the angels. Then Papin's letter shifts abruptly. Babette can cook, but we know not how exquisitely until later in the story. After several years of preparing plain, stark meals for the sisters, Babette wins a large sum of money and the French lottery and offers to provide a real French dinner at an upcoming celebration in honor of their long-deceased father. Uh, they initially refuse, but Babette insists, Do you hear my prayer today? It comes from my heart. At that point, when multiple crates of exotic ingredients arrive, the sisters are plagued by their worst fears. Martine warns the congregation that Babette's feast may actually be a satanic Sabbath that could expose them to evil powers. They all agree to fall silent at the table and numb their tongues. It will be just as if we never had a sense of taste, they say. I mean, isn't that striking? <laughs> they don't realize, of course, however, that Martine's long-lost suitor, Lawrence, will be present at the celebration. As the feast unfolds, he offers an exuberant commentary on each course. It reminds him of the time he dined at a famous restaurant in Paris, the head chef of which was a woman who was considered the greatest culinary genius. She had the reputation for being able to transform a dinner into a kind of love affair, he said. Yes, a love affair that made no distinction between bodily and spiritual appetites. Man, if that is not the incarnation, huh? <laughs> we encounter spiritual mysteries, not by rejecting the pleasures of the physical world, but my dear friends, but by entering into these pleasures in the right way, in the way God intended them to be. You know, Christian fasting is not rooted in suspicion of the physical world or, or the human body or the pleasures of food. Christian fasting is meant to teach us how to feast in the right way. Only those who know how to fast properly know how to feast properly. As we learn the proper rhythm of fasting and feasting, the joys of the senses become not an occasion of sin, but an occasion of grace. This is what takes place. This is what happens through Babette's exotic feast. With Lawrence leading the way, Slowly but surely, a taste of redemption makes its way around the table. As the people open themselves to this occasion of grace, what happens? The Lord works wonders in their spirits through the delight of their senses. Old wrongs are confessed. Old grievances are forgiven. Old loves are rekindled. And the people realize what? That this was not an evil power at work but a divine one. Later in the movie, the sisters learn that, that Babette had spent all of her winnings on the feast. To ease their concern, Babette confesses that she didn't spend all she had only for them. Papin used to say, 
Throughout the world sounds one long cry from the heart of the artist. Give me the chance to do my very best. At this, Philippa seems to realize that like the fearful servant in the gospel parable, she had buried her talent. Thanks to Babette's great gift, Philippa's heart is awakened and now filled with hope in God's mercy. The movie ends with Philippa embracing Babette in gratitude and repeating Papin's words. In paradise, you will be the truly great artist that our merciful Lord meant you to be. Oh, how you will delight all the angels. You know, at the outset of our study on this chapter three weeks ago, uh, we contrasted the path of the Stoic, the addict, and the mystic. And Babette's feast, Martine and Philippa, as well as the whole congregation started by their father, represent the path of the Stoic. Lawrence, on the other hand, represents the path of the addict. In the end, what we are made to see is that everyone is changed by the extravagant artistry of Babette, who, along with Papin, represents the path of the mystic. That being said, <laughs> such a change of heart doesn't always come easily. Sometimes, in fact, as the movie rightly portrays, it can take a lifetime. But if we let life's difficult lessons teach us, there comes a time, Lawrence reflects, when our eyes are opened, focus and colors change and show the way to heaven. It's a great line. When our eyes are opened, focus and colors change and show the way to heaven. What is this way to heaven? Desire. If we wish to enter the banquet that God has prepared for us, we must have the courage to plumb the depths of our desire and follow them the whole way to the other side of their truncated distortions in order to rediscover, we could say, their original wild cry for God. Along the way of this journey, we must pass through the purifying fire, releasing all the things we cling to that are not of God, or idols, we can say, so that we can live from within the passion of an unadulterated eros, where we surrender wildly, freely, and completely to the eros agape love that shoots forth from the divine love of God. If we allow ourselves, my dear friends, to be taken, swept away by God's love, God's passion, we will be well on our way to serving His mission, a mission that needs to be set on fire with our love for God. Amen. Here I would like to close uh, with a piece from Christopher West's work, an entitled hymn that first appeared in the Magnificat. It reads, Forever in the heart there springs a hunger never touched by things, and if unmet this inward need goes prowling as incessant greed. We work to earn what can't be bought, through prayer and faith it must be sought. True bread of heaven, life divine, eternal manna, holy sign. Our need of you incites our quest, your presence brings our search to rest. The hollow, hungry heart is filled, and all its grasping motions stilled. Our quenchless thirst is satisfied, and every need and want supplied. 
Let Christ be praised forevermore, who makes us rich when we are poor, who sees the tattered begging soul beneath the cloak of class and roll, who hears the heart's unspoken groan and meets our need as if his own, to whom all thirst and hunger yield the bread whose taste is truth revealed. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.